You're listening to KRUI 89.7 Iowa City. Welcome to Bijou Banter, produced by the Bijou Film Board, a student-run organization at the University of Iowa, dedicated to the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema. Since 2013, Bijou has assisted with the programming and operation of Film Scene, a nonprofit cinema in downtown Iowa City. As a disclaimer, all of the opinions expressed during Bijou Banter are those of the hosts and our guests, and not those of KRUI or the University of Iowa. It's Thursday, September 29th, 2016, and in this week's show, we'll be discussing three films that are currently playing or about to open at Film Scene. Our lineup includes The Idol, which plays at Film Scene Tuesday, October 4th at 6 p.m. as part of Bijou Horizons. Next, we'll be discussing The Wailing, which plays at Film Scene Saturday, October 1st at 11 p.m. as part of Bijou After Hours. Finally, we'll be discussing My Blind Brother, which opened at Film Scene last week and will continue to play throughout the weekend and all next week. Before we begin to banter, I should introduce my co-host. We have Spencer Williams, a cinema major at the University of Iowa. Welcome, Spencer. Hi. And we have Changmin Yu, a film studies grad student at Iowa. Welcome, Changmin. Glad to be here. And I'm Leah Vonderheide, also a film studies grad student. The Idol by director Hani Abu Assad is a Palestinian drama about Muhammad Asaf, an aspiring musician living in Gaza with a singular but seemingly impossible goal, to make it big and change the world. As a child, Muhammad and his sister Noor envisioned singing at the Cairo Opera House in Egypt. To achieve their goal, they sell fish to buy band equipment, convince a local musician to teach them to sing and play, and eventually hire themselves out as the entertainment for local for local wedding parties. After a family tragedy, time leaps forward in Abu Assad's film, and we are reintroduced to Asif as a college student who's not only abandoned his desire to make it big and change the world, but also lost his passion for singing altogether. But a chance encounter with a childhood sweetheart prompts Asaf to sneak across the Egyptian border in the hopes of making it on TV's Arab Idol. Based on the true story of Asaf's real struggle to get out of Gaza and his subsequent rise to fame, the dramatic arc of the idol is almost too sensational to be believed, which may be why the director increasingly relies on documentary footage in the film's third act. In fact, as I watched the idol, I found myself more interested in Asaf's actual story more than Abu Assad's depiction of it. Spencer Changmin, did you have a similar reaction? I did, for sure. I thought this film... Um... I enjoyed the first part of the film a lot more than I did the second part, and I feel like they were almost two separate films in a way. Um, I almost would have preferred to have seen the first movie take up the entire run of the film, I guess. I don't know. I'm still going back and forth on how I feel about it, but I feel like the documentary footage, too, in the third act just felt so tonally strange because none of that had occurred at any point prior in the movie at all that I was wondering I guess I was more I, I, I guess even before watching this I didn't even know that this was necessarily like a true story mm-hmm. per se um, until the documentary footage came in um, and then I was sort of wondering like would this have been better as like a documentary hearing it from the source of it because there's these moments in the film too that just seem very played out for like dramatic effect and I'm wondering if that mirrors the reality of whatever i don't know <laughs> <laughs> so uh i i think i have a somewhat high expectation for the director because i saw his previous film paradise now who which is a, gold, a golden globe winner um but um 
to say the least, I think at least the opening scene is very well made. I like the chess scene. Uh, but like, there's something so weird and incongruent about the documentary footage because that is supposed to be emphatic and forceful and passionate and, you know, interpolate the audience into identifying with the journey of our singer, but it doesn't. So that's the weird part. So I feel like, I think there's something wrong with the editing of the third part just because um, there's some footage apparently uh, shot later. And there are there's just some footage that is uh, directly coming from, you know, all the TV uh, news broadcasts and whatnot. So, like, they seem to be clashing with each other. And, like, every time we see our protagonist on the small screen, you always see, like, him... Uh, you always see him, like, frontally. Like, and it feels so fake. Like, it's just like, oh my God, it's like somebody is cutting him out and paste it on the screen, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was like one of Sunita's collages or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, did you want to say something? Uh, I was just going to say really quick that I also felt like there were a lot of details that I felt, even though they weren't necessarily like, I don't know, I just felt like a lot of details were missing from the second half of the movie as well. Like, he runs into his, I guess, childhood sweetheart who... Prior, I didn't even realize that he had a childhood sweetheart. I don't remember that part of the well, movie. Well, she's not really like his sweetheart. She's the friend that um, hangs out with his sister that they meet at the hospital. Oh, right. Okay, yeah. that was her. For a second, I thought that that might have been like an even younger sister, and I was just missing the connection. But <laughs> I don't know. I felt like the whole reintroduction of her character seemed, and then her friend too. I don't know that whole. Th- thing just seemed so awkward that this really banal taxi drive over to the university would suddenly spur this like emotional like I need to audition for this now yeah I almost feel like this movie would have made sense the thing about Idol like a show like Idol is that the suspense builds from week to week and so you become really invested in the people in theory that you're like rooting for and want to win and he's the like from what I can tell he's like the most kind of hyped up version of that type of icon ever because all of Gaza starts to support him and he starts to represent something much bigger than himself when he was actually on Idol um but instead in the film the the film almost would have been better, I think, if they had sort of peppered that experience through and allowed these really interesting childhood scenes to be interspersed, sort of as flashbacks, but also just to sort of weave it into the suspense of the idol itself. Like Slumdog Millionaire? Yeah, but of course, that would (laughs) make it exactly like Slumdog Millionaire, which already I feel like this film kind of suffers from the looming shadow that is that movie, even though it's that's a fictional movie and not really at all the same. Yeah. And yet there's a lot of similarities and it's hard not to think about Slumdog Millionaire when you're watching this film. But I think that that, again, I still think that that's an effective way to do it because otherwise you're left with this sort of third act where they're just rushing through a bunch of information about his experience actually being on the show. Spencer, do you still remember uh, last semester we talked about a film from Israel, uh, The Cupcakes? I don't think I was on for that one. Okay. Oh, I was there. Yeah, so you were there. So, like, I don't know why, but, like, they are kind of similar, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, but, like, uh, 
for the cup case, the story is told from the Israeli side, and、mm. this film is to,、uh, told from the Palestinian side. So, like, I don't know why, but like,、uh, it seems to me that seeing competitions are becoming this vehicle for a certain kind of nationalism emerging in in the Middle East. Well, let's take that even further because singing has been an important theme in the movies that we've watched this semester. So we've already had Farah's political songs from the Tunisian film as I Open My Eyes. We had Morris's personal rhymes from Morris from America, Sunita's activist rap in Sunita, and now we have Mohammed Asaf's clear and melodious voice in The Idol. We should probably talk about whether or not we were blown away by his singing because I think we were supposed to be.、Um, is this trend a coincidence, or is there a reason for all this singing? I mean. Um, I don't know. I don't. I feel like singing. I don't. Know, I feel like you can somehow express something with singing that you can't if you're just like having a conversation. And I'm not entirely sure what it is, but I don't know. I feel like there's like some sort of you're giving up. I don't know some sort of control to the ether when you're like singing, and especially if it's like political too. I mean. People can listen to it because of its message, or they can listen to it because it sounds pretty. That's true. It's both entertainment and and activist art. I know. I think it is also about the technological limitations in the Middle East or in the、um, North Africa, right? So, like、uh, in Sonita or in、um, As Open My Eyes,、um, singing is like a Grassroots action、mm-hmm. to express like a populist、uh, sentiment,、mm-hmm. and here it is being,、um, I don't know, blown up by the television media. But still,、uh, it is about、um, a uni- unifying force that is、um, unseen elsewhere. Especially, you can imagine with all the. Uh, censorship going on with、uh, all these mi- Middle East、uh, television stations. So I don't know. I feel like that's why maybe singing is a less divisive medium in that sense. Like it's less open to censorship. It's, no, it's not less open to censorship, but it's harder to censor. Well, just I don't know. I I, I don't think I'm making sense, but still. No, I mean. I'm I'm with you. I'm with you. I mean, yeah, and we, I guess we should also then talk about the context of this film being set in Gaza, and it's set in Gaza in 2005, and when it jumps forward, it's、um, 2012. The film itself, though, gives I think very little、um, historical or cultural context for certain things that are happening in the movie.、Um, it really it, did it leave you wanting more exposition about the situation in Gaza. In in those two particular years, which a lot has happened between 2005 and 2012 in Gaza, or, think, or what do you think the reason is behind just having such scant information about what's happening in the country? I think the film wants to be like a neo-realist film, but like it sort of fails because its its melodramatic structure doesn't really align with、uh, the ruins and rubbles. Like we all only see those like. In passing, when our protagonist is driving the taxi, right? So, like, I think the director does want to bring that element into the narrative with, for example, the、uh, Skype live streaming of their singing, but it didn't really succeed.、Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I feel like maybe a parallel can be drawn 
to as I open my eyes in the sense that with that film too, there's not a lot of exposition that's given. But I think the difference is that when the lead character of As I Open My Eyes is singing her songs, we get like very political lyrics Mm -hmm. that are going along with whatever she's singing. And that sort of, the songs, I guess, actually sort of like fuel um, or inform us, I guess, a little bit about the political, um, I guess, upheaval that is occurring. Whereas in this, in the idol... Like, the songs that he's singing aren't necessarily politically charged in any way. Uh, the emphasis is more so on how, like, beautiful and glorious his voice is mm-hmm. rather than what specifically he is singing. And so with this movie, I did find myself wanting a little bit more exposition just in terms to sort of, like, m- marry it all together, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, and I wonder if that choice had to do with wanting a global audience for the film. Um, I mean, if we think about Tunisia and the way that that film, as I open my eyes, is set kind of right on the cusp of the Arab Spring, which globally, I think generally Westerners at least, think of that as the spreading of democracy and a sort of pro-democracy revolution. And it's a little harder to categorize, you know, the role of the Hamas government in Gaza. You know, like that's mm-hmm. not something that everybody's like can put into a box very easily. So I don't know if the reason to keep the context out of it was because of that. It just, it's too difficult to navigate in a story about somebody who's singing or if just purposefully um, he really wanted his voice, uh, the director really wanted Asif's voice to kind of rise above the rabble, as it were. I feel like the recitation of uh, the Quran in a film is powerful mm-hmm. and very effective, but I just don't know how I feel about all those songs yeah I think they are not being conveyed uh, in an effective cinematic way (laughs) because it it always feels cheesy and corny I don't know if it felt cheesy and corny I just felt like I didn't I didn't have a connection to them and it wasn't explained to me cinematically how to feel about them and I kind of needed that in this particular film given that this is a film that doesn't shy away from explaining to you how to feel emotionally at certain times (laughs) you would think that when he's singing it would be one of those times I actually felt kind of bad watching this movie because there's that moment where he's backstage about to go on and he's watching another contestant sing her song and I just thought she was so much better and I was like (laughs) so much more moved by her performance and like how her voice sounded than him and so when I was supposed to be rooting for this guy I was like man I wish we could bring her back (laughs) what's her story like what's her story she has a great voice like (laughs) All right, well, we will end there. Again, The Idol plays at Film Scene Tuesday, October 4th at 6 p.m. as part of Bijou's World Cinema Series, Bijou Horizons. For more information on Bijou Horizons, check out bijou.uiowa.edu. After a quick break, we'll be back to discuss The Wailing. Hello, I'm John Lithgow. Manatees are unique, among the most amazing animals on Earth, but they're endangered. We pose the greatest threat to their survival. Many manatees are killed or injured by boats or other recreational activities. I'm a writer of children's books, including one about manatees, and I believe education is the key. You can be part of the solution. Please contact Save the Manatee Club right now. (laughs) 
Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films, playing locally at Film Scene. Let's move on to our second film, The Wailing. Changmin, I'm excited to have you convince me of this film's greatness. <laughs> of course, let's do that. The Exorcist meets the conversation, meets Zodiac, meets Evil Dead. Then you get The Wailing. <laughs> This might sound too abstract. How can a film successfully incorporate all those different horror elements, both psychological and corporeal? Well, this is precisely why I consider the well to be the epitome of recent <laughs> Korean cinema. It tells a story of small town murders. Townies went cuckoo one after another, probably due to large amount of mushrooms they ingested, and went on a killing spree. Some say it was all because of the old Japanese man who just moved into the nearby mountain recently. Some say they have witnessed the old man on all fours, eyes reddened, and chewing on raw venison. Well, you know, just some incredulous gossip. Our protagonist is a laid-back sergeant detective who seems always out of place and out of time. After the first murder, a series of uncanny, bizarre incidents ensues. A naked woman running in the middle of the night, a sudden fire that took away an entire family, and many more. The film is well-paced to the extent that it drives you nuts. It takes 156 minutes to tell a horrifying tale that most directors cannot even begin to imagine, precisely the reason why most horror films are less than 90 minutes. Our attention span is never that long, and we lose patience the moment we think we find out what the final ending is. The Welling never makes me feel that way. Its riveting storytelling is combined with all the generic elements of new Korean cinema. Serial killings, inept detectives, surprising twists and turns. Also, there's the Japanese man as the mythical villain, a long-standing tradition of both Korean and Japanese cinema. If something is wrong, blame the other side. So, my fellow banterers, do you like this film as much as I do? Let's start with the... Uh... <laughs> um, I, I did not like it as much as you did, but... Um, there, I mean, I did feel a sense of real accomplishment in watching this film. It's very beautiful. Um, there's incredible performances. Uh, I was certainly intrigued by the premise, and I have thought about the film continuously in the days since watching it. So that usually makes me think that it's better than not. That being said, um, I so <laughs> despised the protagonist, and I thought the performance was great, and it's it's not even that I don't understand the role of the bumbling, inept detective in a horror film setting in particular. Like that's, It seems like that's a trope, you know, somebody who's just do, doing their job really badly, and that's kind of also allowing... The, the the horrifying murders to take place because if he was just better at his job then maybe he could have fixed this to begin with but he is so bad at everything <laughs> he does he makes every wrong choice at every possible turn in this movie that i just had this feeling after two and a half hours like you really have it coming to you like i am not rooting for you <laughs> and um i don't think that the film wanted me to dislike him that much that is all. Spencer. <laughs> um, all right. Um, I love this movie. I would actually even go as far to say that this is probably my favorite movie of 2016 so far. Ooh. Um, I know, yes. right? <laughs> yes. I, I love it. Um, and I guess I sort of, 
I agree with you in the sense that I don't think that the main protagonist is all that likable, but I also think that in this movie it kind of works to sort of despise this guy because it just means that more crazy, awful things are going to happen, which is exactly what I want to see in this movie. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean... The film is entitled The Welling. What do you expect? I just need more people to wail, man. Um, (laughs) I guess I didn't put that together. I mean, it is all very Job-like. And, you know, I mean, this... Is the director just obsessed with like the Bible? Is this nor- or is this normal typical of Korean cinema? I, I, you mean the uh, cultish elements, the shamanic elements? Yeah, well, and also just direct references to scripture, like yeah. in in lots of um, contradictory ways. Yeah, right. Like oh, oh, okay. One reason is that this is a weird thing, but Korea is the only sort of Christian country in Asia. Okay. So this would resonate, this trying. Mm -hmm. It just sort of felt like it was using Christian references as almost like Easter eggs, like figure out the reference and (laughs) maybe the reference will help you understand what's going on. Or maybe it's like a trick (laughs) (laughs) and it's going to confuse you much like the characters who like can't figure out what's going on. I think what I maybe loved most about this movie is that with most horror movies, you can kind of tell where it's going to end up and you can kind of tell the fates of each character before it actually happens. And with this movie, I don't know, I felt like I was constantly... I felt like my expectations were constantly being subverted, and I never really quite knew who to align with or who I should be directing my sympathies towards. I mean, obviously... I mean, there's the mo- I'm supposed to obviously sympathize with his daughter the most, who's, like, in a state of suffering. And then something else happens, and suddenly this person I'm empathizing with is horrifying and so i don't know it just plays with that and i think that's just so interesting and i think it also helps that this film is just beautifully shot like i don't think there's a shot in this movie that i wouldn't like to put on my wall but um well okay (laughs) (laughs) maybe more of the gory ones but um yeah i think and i think the i'm still not entirely sure what to make of this japanese man character sort of implemented in the story but i think it's an interesting device and i think it really sets up the ending which i thought was maybe one of the scariest endings i've ever seen (laughs) and a little confusing a little like i think that's why i've had to think about it so much is because it takes a lot of unpacking to figure out what maybe is going on towards the end um but yeah it's can we can we unpack the role of the Japanese character? You say that this is common, Changmin. To... Yes. So so uh, as you might uh, have known, that I I lectured on another Japanese film, Death by Hanging, in which there's this uh, Korean character that is be- being blamed for all the crimes ever. Mm-hmm. So I think because of the colonial tension between Korea and Japan. Um, Many Korean films and Japanese films would just blame each other for deviant behaviors. So I think this is also the case here. Like, if you cannot trace the root of any kind of evil, blame the Japanese. Or, like, um, well, you know, how should I put it? Because, like, the status quo of this divided Korea originated from Japanese colonization. Yeah. So in that sense, like you can say that 
uh, modern Korea has this antagonistic relationship with uh, Japanese people and uh, its imperialism. So I don't know. So like it's it's understandable to see such a character because it uh, it occupies an important uh, place in their national myth. But usually when there's um, a scapegoat, like a racialized scapegoat in a movie, I feel like the movie tends to try to help us understand the way in which we do that in real life. Like, I'm trying to think of an example, but like, I kept thinking, oh, the the fact that they want to blame everything on this Japanese character who they don't know very well, and they know mm-hmm. very little about him, is revealing their own antipathies and feelings of anxiety around, the, around his foreignness, right? But like in a horror film, that always gets so much more complicated. Like without going into the details of the twists and turns of this movies, of this movie, I don't know. Like, does the message, does the exploration of that topic get problematic with the infusion of horror elements in this film? I think it is because the mythical depiction of this character that you feel like the director is really playing with generic elements. Okay. So like, it is not trying to give you. Like a realistic uh, extrapolation of all the issues facing uh, Korean people with the invasion of Japan as their history, right? Mm-hmm. So it is trying to say that uh, the fear uh, toward the Japanese is so deeply rooted in Korean psychology that it can only be manifest in such a format. Okay. Okay, so. <laughs> I'll, See, I'll agree yeah. with you, I guess. <laughs> uh, I just have to spend every uh, breath I have to defend this film. Okay, so I think one reason why I cannot watch most of the horror films again is just because I lose patience the second time around. I did watch The Welding again this morning, and it didn't disappoint me. So Nahon Jin, direct, the director, did an amazing job on tightening the plot and kept our attention focused. So what is it about the film that keeps us going in the long 156 minutes? Um, I don't know, honestly. I mean, there are many... When I first saw this, um, it was back in June, actually. Um, and there were like three different moments where I thought, okay, this is like when the credits are going to go. And then it didn't. The, the credits didn't go. And so I was sitting there and I was like, oh, so how much longer is this like movie going to go? But then I found myself so enraptured in what was happening after these points that I thought the movie was going to end at that it didn't bother me like it would have if it had been any other movie that kind of like overstayed its welcome a bit. Um, and I'm not, I'm still not entirely sure what, what this film has in it that made that, that made me feel that way. Um, but I don't know. I've just, I've, maybe it's because it's just like each, I don't know. I feel like this film is so inspired and it's so like, I don't know, rich, I guess, um, in the details. And like, I feel like if the movie had cut out at earlier points, there would have been things that I would have wanted to know more about that ultimately this film answers as it continues to go along. I... I mean, my answer is pretty banal. Did you? Did it, you didn't, feel- it didn't keep my attention. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, but I mean, I, I always look at the time of a movie that I'm, I, I'll do 
I will read nothing about a film before going to see it. I'll sometimes avoid reading the subtitle of a film, but I will still always check the running time. That's like very important to me. So I knew that this was a long film. And and I was really engrossed for the first hour to hour and a half. And then I completely just, I was super frustrated with it. I like wanted it to wrap up really badly. I will say um, the nature of, of us talking about these films means that I was watching it on my computer and so I, it's so much easier to disengage uh, kind of when you're sitting in your living room watching it on a small screen. And if I had been in the movie theater, I think I would have been far more engaged with, with the story. All right. So uh, let's talk about the horror elements in this film. So there's <laughs> something about this body horror that just gives you the right amount of sores, blisters, jerking, wiggling, and contortions. I'm saying this because, uh, for example, Evil Dead or Phantasmon gives you too much. There's a fine, delicate line to make use of cinema's capability to invoke the unformed, slimy, and gooey presence of fresh. Um, flesh, actually. Either as a zombie or decaying flesh. So do you agree? Like, I, I know, that's just how I feel because, like, uh, when I was watching Evil Dead this summer or, like, uh, Phantasmon, uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I just feel like there's too much gooey stuff. Yeah, I mean, I feel like when there's like an excessive amount of goo, it suddenly shifts from horror to comedy really easily, <laughs> yes. where suddenly it's no longer believable. And so then you can kind of laugh at it because it's so far removed from reality. And I mean, even in Phantasm, like the way that the gore happens too is also very unrealistic. So it just makes it all the more easy to sort of dismiss it and not feel like particularly disgusted by it i feel um and also because usually the content like the contents of the gooiness and evil dead and phantasm looks just so artificial to begin with that it just i don't know it seems like a gag um but in this movie like i don't know there's something about the body horror in this movie that seems very much grotesque and um like realistic in the sense that it doesn't give you too much of it. It gives you, like, the right amount for you to be, like, ugh. Like, you have, like, um, like a gut reaction to it when it first appears, but then it doesn't, like, keep hitting you over the head with it. And there are really, like, there's, like, build-ups to the moments when there are sort of these gross, fleshy moments. Um, but then after that, it doesn't, like, continue to push the gore in your face and be like, look at what we're doing. We're trying to gross you out right now. It's just, like, <laughs> it happens, and it's, like... It's a whoa moment, and then the story continues. Yeah, I mean, I I close my eyes when things are gross, but um, so I might have missed certain things. Um, <laughs> but I do think that one really effective moment started with one character's nosebleed, um, and then the way in which that that rest of that particular scene played out. Um, because it was something so simple as like having a nosebleed, which is kind of a wild thing to, that can happen and have you know no effect on a person normally. Um, I think was particularly effective. I was really I like didn't even look away because I I just couldn't. I was and that normally never happens with me. <laughs> Pretty quick to look away. <laughs> no. So one question: Did you like John Hu's Mad Masters? Because this film reminds me of, uh, you know, about the cannibals. Yeah. No, I didn't like that film. <laughs> Did you? Yeah. That movie is horribly disturbing, and it's a documentary. I haven't seen it. But also, I would say the pioneering work of corporeal cinema. 
What is that? So it's a documentary about... Um, Wait, are they? What are they doing? They're having a ritual. Yeah, they are having a ritual, and they do like they- a cleansing ritual because uh, they are trying to get the colonial uh, colonial uh, oppression out of their system. So they are just doing all this very weird stuff. They butcher a dog, they yeah. eat it, and they uh, are making all these uh, disgusting kind of bodily gestures and invocations. Yeah, and that movie is so disturbing on a, on a few different levels because of the ethics of the documentary f- film crew that's there filming this in a way that's like, I don't know, the power dynamics are really confusing. Um, and the bodily kind of possession that they go through, which involves a lot of bodily fluids kind of going in and coming out. Um, yeah, no, I <laughs> I did not like that movie. I mean, you have it gives you like a physical reaction as a viewer. Oh, I thought just because you know, I mean, it's sort of canonical, and I don't know. Like, I mean, I, I mean, but like you see, like a, uh, I'm just trying to tease out the long tradition of body cinema. I think uh, Zhang Hush is one of the first directors to do this, even in the documentary context. <sighs> <laughs> yeah, I mean. Okay, don't worry. Let's not talk about this, okay? Now I keep thinking of the other one, the the, uh, <laughs> the, the cannibal holocaust. Which, cannibal wait, holocaust. Man, did I say in Mad Masters that they're cannibals? They're not cannibals. Did I say that? Yeah, not cannibals. Now I feel badly if I said that because I know that that's not what that's about. But now yeah. I'm also thinking of cannibal holocaust, which is like... <laughs> the <yeah>. best. No. <laughs> Your fave. You guys. No, no, no. I don't agree with that claim. But uh, I do that's see it's a uh, revolutionary effect. On some films. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of shoulder shrugging going on on my side over here. (laughs) Movies you love. (laughs) Um, All right. Are we wrapping up there? Yeah. I'm yet to be convinced. uh, But I did. I I should just say that um, I thought it was like a good film as an object. It just was clearly not something that entertained me or drew me in. So, but I'm just wondering. Maybe you should watch it again. Maybe I, <laughs> Maybe I should. Maybe I should do that. All right. Again, The Wailing <laughs> plays at Film Scene Saturday, October 1st at 11 p.m. as part of Bijou After Hours. For more information on Bijou After Hours, check out bijou.uiwa.edu. Before we move on to our third film, let's check on the weather. It is currently 69 degrees in Iowa City. Tonight, partly cloudy with a low of 53 degrees. Tomorrow, Friday, mostly cloudy with isolated showers and a high of 66 degrees. We are laughing a lot in tonight's show. (laughs) (laughs) But do continue. Thanks, (laughs) Jackie. You're listening to Bijou Banter on KRUI, Iowa City. Bijou Banter is a show dedicated to discussing films playing locally at Film Scene. Let's move on to our third and final film, My Blind Brother. Spencer, perhaps you can share your impressions of this film before we begin our discussion. Yeah. So, have you ever wanted to punch a movie in the face? Or at the very least, put an entire cinema screen on mute? 
Well, if you haven't experienced either of these feelings, then I cordially invite you to sit through My Blind Brother, a romantic comedy about assholes who catch feelings. Featuring a cast of esteemed comic actors from the wonderful Jenny Slate, who is given the thankless task of portraying a young woman named Rose who is racked with guilt and arrested development in equal doses. To Adam Scott, portraying a blind egoist named Robbie, who partakes in a series of athletic events to prove that his blindness does not inhibit his ability to do what people with sight can do. He's also insufferable. His brother Bill, played with the blandness only a saltine cracker can provide by Nick Kroll, has had enough of his brother's accolades and wants to carve out an identity all his own. The only problem is that on his own, he's too boring to hold the screen and my attention. The film also has a score that tries to milk every hipster emotional beat in the audience, and some other people in my screening laughed wholeheartedly throughout, and I wish I could have been one of them, especially as a diehard Jenny Slate fan. However, I found myself with a bitter taste in my mouth as the credits rolled, unsure of what message I was supposed to leave with. Um, that being said, I am interested to know what my fellow banterers think. Did this film do something for you that it did not do for me? We have to start with Leah. Why do we have to start with me? <laughs> because we are on the same side. I know, you guys are ganging up on me today. <laughs> I enjoyed this film. I have like a, the opposite response uh, to this film as I did to The Wailing, where I enjoyed this film. I don't know if I'm prepared to like, defend this film as a good object, per se, but I actually had a pleasurable time watching the film. Um, I am also a huge Jenny Slate fan, and I really felt like... Um, I wasn't, I don't think I was as mad at Nick Kroll as you were, Spencer, but um, as soon as she kind of enters the scene, it's just so clear how just, I don't know, great she is. She just really brings a lot to every scene that she's in. She has a lot of subtlety in the way that she expresses her both dramatic and comic performances, and I loved her. I thought she really did well kind of executing what could have been a really boring role. And um, also her roommate in the movie is Zoe Kazan. And that made me extremely happy because I didn't know that she was going to show up. And I do think that for a portion of the film, I was distracted in my own mind, kind of imagining their life together, <laughs> how much fun it must be for them to live together in the same house and just be like really fun and cool together. Um, I don't think that this movie... Uh, or I, I recognize that this movie has a lot of flaws, and I think it had a fair amount of laziness with some of its writing. Um, but overall, I thought as a rom-com, there was a lot of pleasure in the just like kind of blatant embrace of celebrating the central couple and just how in love they just are. They just are. <laughs> they can't fight it. <laughs> um, that's where I come down. Chiming, why did you hate it? <laughs> Just like you, it's a gut feeling. <laughs> I have a gut reaction to this film because the film is, you know, making all kinds of jokes at the expense of other people. And just like, and like even, like we, we, we have discussed Jenny Slade uh, on Benter with Obvious Child and we, we both love that film. And because that is the right amount of lightheartedness with some kind of fun i don't know it's just the right balance and right chemistry here the role is just so wrong for jenny state even with jenny state the, the role the character still seems so boring like she she has no depth at all i feel like jenny slate brought a lot of depth to that character the the con the the conflict that she feels 
um, given the, the the sudden loss of a pre of a of a recent ex boyfriend, <laughs> um, that she kind of works through in the movie, I thought was and her basically her gut reactions as a character to situations I found really funny. Like that worked for me. The way in which she simply uses her sexuality to just like calm down situations all the time. Her kind of um, she just throws like emotions and kisses at things that are like a problem. I found that really just funny to me. So like I I do like that kind of awkwardness, like the like using your own sexuality as so some sort of weapon and like, like and, <laughs> that and, is uh, a weapon. It's like a, <laughs> oh, like a weapon <laughs> that makes her sound like a femme fatale. She's like <laughs> using it as a way to like shush people, like shh, it's okay, like <laughs> to like calm people still down. Still a weapon. <laughs> Just the, you know, non-harmful kind. But still, like, it, there's something so... Like, she's living in this charity vacuum, right? Like, she... Yeah, we don't know what her job is or anything. Yeah, we don't know, like, uh, what she does or, like, what kind of person she is. Like, we all we get is the interaction between the character and two other boys. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to defend all of the writing of this film. I'm definitely not going to do that. But I did think that her portrayal of Rose worked for me. Like, I found it pleasurable enough that it made me laugh on several occasions. And I just, I found myself thinking through, when she would propose how she was trying to reason through certain situations throughout the film, um, I found myself, like, thinking about it and whether or not she was, just how crazy she was being. I think this film is... A little bit like that Amy Schumer comedy. Trainwreck? Yeah, Trainwreck. Well, to me. Yeah, a little bit. Where there's, like, in the sense that there's some things that are happening that you appreciate and other things that are just real schmaltzy and, like... Like, just no. And lazy, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I feel like the difference there... I don't know. I feel like Trainwreck, um, at least in some points, didn't let its characters off the hook in the way that this movie seemed to be doing. I don't know. And at least there are some funny moments in that film. You get LeBron James. Yeah, that's true. I laughed at that movie. Yeah. <laughs> so there. Um, <laughs> so you didn't laugh once at this whole I movie. I laughed. Okay, I laughed at Zoe Kazan. I thought she's great. I think she's great in everything. Um, and I really would have much preferred a spinoff movie of her and Rose. And that's it. No boys. No boys allowed. No, no boys, boys allowed, allowed in that film. I, I mean, I kind of agree. Yeah. Like, I, I, I was covering my eyes. I was like thinking about getting another glass of wine. I think that the... I did. <laughs> See, so you guys that. missed all the funny parts. We're out drinking wine. I was only thinking about it. Not doing it, okay? I thought, I mean, just even at the very beginning, there's a scene where Jenny Slate is naked, um, like, in the morning. And she just does a lot of, like, physical comedy in a in a way like a lot with her body that's like kind of hard to pull off when you're totally naked and i found that whole scene really funny and well played i feel like her performance in this movie is kind of like a b-side to the performance that she gave an obvious child which yes. i still prefer well obvious child is a much better <laughs> that everybody agrees yeah. but let's uh shift our focus a little bit to Sigh, the boys in this movie. Um, so what do you think this film's attitude is towards blindness? I don't know. For me, it seemed to be saying that, on one hand, yes, blind people can accomplish anything a person with vision can. But then it also sometimes suggests that, you know, that's not all, that's not the case either. I don't know. It was a confusing message and one that I'm still trying 
to wrap my head around. And also there are these moments between Nick Kroll and Adam Scott's characters where there seems to be like a grudge that's been held throughout these many years that I had wanted to see parsed out a little bit more. Um, But they kind of just leave things where they've always left them by the end of even like in their cathartic moments together it still feels like there have been things that have been left unsaid that are inevitably going to boil up again even when the credits have rolled i don't know i just felt very unsatisfied by that dynamic i agree i think that this one of the things that this movie really suffered from was the lack of the relationship between the brothers i think i could have understood this movie more if the, if their underlying relationship rang true, and they try to insist that it does, they try. They literally say something along the lines of like, "Well, you know, I love you," right? As if that's gonna like take the place of developing an actual relationship on screen between two brothers that the audience can actually believe in. Show not um, Yeah, and <laughs> instead, it's just a lot of them being really antagonizing to each other, and so you can't quite figure out if like just how much animosity is there or just how much love is there. And I think the film wants you to believe that underneath it all, like there's this really strong connection between the two of them, but I just wasn't buying that connection. Um, I was going to say something else. Oh, and the thing about blindness, because Adam Scott's character is a jerk. um, And I think it's interesting to say like, okay, here's a character with a disability and he's a jerk because he doesn't have to be an angel. Like that's fine. But there's a confusing conversation that takes place in the film where I was left to wonder if I'm supposed to believe that he's partially a jerk because of his blindness, because of some of the dialogue that he gives towards the end. And that seems like a very unfair (laughs) depiction of, I I don't know, an experience. But I don't know. What did you think, Changmin? I think blindness is just not a point of this film. Like, not in any sense. Like, uh, it is just, I think, a convenient way to depict a relationship uh, in which somebody has to take care of somebody else. So, uh, in that sense, it's a good prim- uh, premise. But, like, I, I just don't see it plays an important narrative part in the film. Um, as for the interaction between the two boys, I think... Uh, this is even more YA film than an ordinary YA film because, like, it like you are just seeing like two men boys playing with each other. <laughs> 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 like, no, oh, I love you. No, you don't love me. That kind of interaction, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's take a quick break, and when we return, we'll continue our discussion of my blind brother. Support for Care UI is brought to you in part by The Broken Spoke. They offer new and used bicycles, cycling accessories, and also service all kinds of bikes. They can be found in Iowa City at their new address, 757 South Gilbert Street. For more information, visit thebrokenspoke.com or call 319-338-8900. Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films playing locally at Film Scene. We're currently discussing My Blind Brother, Spencer. Oh, okay. I want to bring something up. (laughs) There's a conversation I hate so much in a film about, like, um, the. I think the Adam Scott character 
was like, "Oh, you just had sex!" Ah! I was like, uh, "Okay, what do you want me to react to?" See, that was a scene where I thought they were going to build up a sense that they really do have a close relationship, living together, and that they've known each other their whole lives, and so they might pick on each other, but they also have like an incredible amount of support. And instead, that particular scene devolves into Adam Scott slut shaming and his brother (laughs) not like in any way responding to that, which I felt like the character, if I'm supposed to be rooting for him, would have at least engaged with that line about how she can't be like a nice girl because she spent the night. Yeah. I don't know. And I think that ties in maybe to one of my other questions, which is who do you end up feeling the most sympathy for in this movie? Because I feel like the movie wants us to feel more sympathetic to Bill, which is already sort of like a problematic stance to take. But then it also, like Bill's also just the most boring character. So I don't know. I guess I feel sympathy for him in the sense that I wish he had been better written. Um, (laughs) Like, I'm sorry that he wasn't well fleshed out, but I don't know. I felt feeling most sorry for Francie, who is Rose's roommate, because she totally gets sidelined by this movie. And I don't know, the one time that they're in a group together and she's there too, she just totally gets like the really crappy side of (laughs) the equation, I guess. She gets short-ended by everyone at that table. Um, And then we never hear from her again, except for, like, some glances of, like, animosity. Well, no, she... And then she actually does have a little romance of her own. um, But I thought that that was, like, one of the weirdest turns. It's like you can kind of see it coming, but it was, like... Yeah, they were just kind of going through the motions. Like, we've introduced a bunch of characters. Now we're going to have to, like... pair up. (laughs) So, yeah, I thought that... Um, I thought what she was effective in doing, though, was to show that Nick Kroll's character is actually charming. Like, if you didn't believe it with Rose, like, you could still somehow believe it through Francie. She's, like, reinforcing the idea that he is actually a pretty fun guy. He doesn't take himself very seriously. You can have fun dancing with him at a at a bar. Like, I think that that's what Francie's role was um, and she did it well but that's kind of a shame that that's how they're using Zoe Kazan true I I just cannot identify with any of the characters in the film I think like god I'm I'm bashing this film too much but still uh, I think one reason is that uh, maybe like you can sort of uh, have some sympathy toward Ross that's the one thing I would say. But then again, um, there's just something so wrong about Bill. Like, especially um, his interaction with uh, the copy shop girl. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, the, that entire subplot is just unnecessary. I don't know why the director wants to include, like, an immigrant uh, character into this particular a film to emphasize what like i just don't get like oh is uh is the director uh trying to say something like oh bill is looking for an intellectual connection he he doesn't want the body only because obviously uh the girl in the coffee shop was very beautiful so like he doesn't want sex only he wants that kind of emotional connection and association but like that that to me just 
doesn't fly. That you literally just explained the reason why that scene's in there, though. So I don't think you're actually confused as to why the scene is. No, but he's so <laughs> like You just explained it. They're trying yeah, to right. make the point that he's a guy that even though he hasn't had sex in a year or whatever, that the point is not that like he couldn't. The point is that like he wants to have a connection with somebody. Still doesn't fly. I don't know. I read that scene a little differently where I was like, I don't know if this movie is trying to say that even like the most boring man is just irresistible to like, <laughs> to, like to just like women in the workplace. I don't know. That scene kind of left a bad taste in my mouth, but just because I had interpreted it that way where I was just like, why? Like, he's so boring. Yeah, I mean, this <laughs> like, film definitely, like, gets, I mean, poor Nick Kroll, but it comes really close to kind of the, the Kevin James thing where you're like, oh, I'm sorry, just gorgeous Jenny Slate and, like, gorgeous <laughs> Zoe Kazan and this gorgeous Russian woman, like, at the coffee or at the coffee shop is they're just all throwing themselves at him because they just can't get enough. <laughs> or like, like, the, like the, the, the most boring guy in. ever. This like schlubby guy. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I didn't appreciate that. Although when he was, um, I wasn't completely like appalled by him. Like, I don't think he's like a dreamboat, but I thought he seemed charismatic enough that I seemed to understand Jenny Slate's attraction to him. Okay, all right. So I think uh, I have a proposal. I think like we should just crop each shot in this film, leave out all the male characters. So like we will only see Jenny Slade and <laughs> uh, Francie and whatever. And th- I think we'll get a better film. That'd be an interesting movie, Jenny Slade just falling in love with like two ghosts <laughs> that we never see. I'm just having to reckon with that. That would be a way more interesting Francie movie. will have none of that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I guess my last question is, I guess, what do we make of Rose's guilt over the loss of her ex-boyfriend in this movie? Because that seems to be sort of a cloud that kind of reigns on this entire movie a bit. Um, And I was just sort of left with wondering if that guilt was misplaced or even to, I guess, like a harsher extent, even like valid in the sense of like, she didn't push her boyfriend in front of the bus, you know, but also I feel like one of the most emotional moments for me in this movie was when she goes to his parents. And even that move, even that scene kind of falls flat in the end where she, they're like, oh, well, what did you guys argue about? Mm-hmm. And she's like, meh. And then they're like, oh, it's fine. And then that ends. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't. Everybody's fine. Everyone's fine. And like, she keeps running into them too. And they seem to sort of be, I don't know, the world's nicest old people. But I don't know. I also felt like maybe there was, like, a tinge, like, where there were, like, there were moments where I thought maybe, like, they were going to suddenly just blow up on her. And that would have been, like, a very interesting dynamic to have. But that never happened. I don't know. I just don't know how to make of it. Okay. So, but you didn't think the scene in the restaurant when the ex-boyfriend's parents show up and she gets caught introducing her new boyfriend to them. I thought that that scene was a great comedic scene. I thought everything that happened, fr- like, coming out of that scene and her kind of fumbling and messing up and then trying to, like, defend herself against um, Adam Scott's character. I can't remember their names. Um, that she's, like, she really did make a mistake, but he really does have a point, even though he's being a jerk about it. And he's actually like realizing all of her ulterior motives and she can't admit that. Like, I just found all of that to be really funny and comedic and well played as a scene. I did like a full body cringe 
Like, I just sort of, like, shriveled up in my seat. I didn't really think that was, like, a funny moment, per se. I don't know. I guess I could see why people might think that's a funny moment. I don't know. For me, my reaction to it was more just, like, oh, God, I need more alcohol. Like, <laughs> but I think that was the kind of humor they were going for, like, the almost unbearable. Because so, it felt so real to me. Well, for this particular thing, I want to agree with Leah. Yes! <laughs> because I think this is the, salvation. Yes, this is the only likable scene in the entire film because I think there's the right amount of awkwardness and also uh, Jenny uh, Slate's performance has that kind of spontaneity, right? So like mm-hmm. it is like all thinking on her feet. So it's so like the, that gives you something to think about, especially with. Uh, Robbie's interaction with all the guests around. So like that uh, enriches the entire atmosphere of that awkwardness. So I do like the scene, like in comparison with all the others. <laughs> Which is not a like a very big threshold. So it's like a it's like a no Chameen really liked that scene and he said that I was right about it. So <laughs> Alright, again my blind brother <laughs> I'm not kidding. (laughs) My blind brother opened a film scene last week and will continue to play throughout the weekend and all next week, so check it out. And for a complete list of showtimes, check out out Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. If you're interested in seeing film that challenges, inspires, educates, and entertains in downtown Iowa City, please check out Film Scene and Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. To find this and past episodes of Bijou Banter, please check out Bijou's website, bijou.uiowa.edu. All of our episodes are are also available on iTunes. You've been listening to Bishu Banter. Spencer, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Changmin, it's a pleasure as always. Likewise. I'm Leah, and I look forward to more banter next week.